0: where were you when uh tony ferguson's soul was beaten out of his body over what was it 24 minutes way too long
1: (laughs) that was a perfect intro Ax. that was (laughs) was it 24 minutes is that the exact call i don't even remember
2: it was like yeah about a minute until the fight was over let's see
1: okay oh god that's way too long
2: yeah it was 339 into round five so 23 minutes, 39 seconds.
1: Yeah, come on, Hacks. You're making it sound like it was a late stoppage.
2: 21 seconds off. How Sorry dare you?
1: Um, but yeah, welcome back. We, uh, Serum and I were bad about our scheduling, and we did not get to this fight card the week after, but here we are uh, a little bit, you know, weakened some change after UFC 249. I am um, still a little bit stunned that the fight card went on at all because Jacques <laughs> tested positive the day before. <laughs> and all it's of really us were like... All, seriously, all of us were like, oh, they're definitely going to call it. And then it just it just kept going. It's yeah, uh, just to impossible my knowledge, to underestimate. It's, tr- it's true. It, to my knowledge, no one else tested positive, I don't think. I didn't hear uh, anything about
2: it. is team did,
1: it, but... I, I mean, apart from them, after they left, I would have thought that more... No? Was that, I mean, that was the only one?
2: it's probably going to only show up in like a week or so, because i'm pretty That's sure it's
1: true now is the time that they should be <laughs> yeah <laughs> if they're showing symptoms um but that's not why you're here.
0: <laughs> I mean, I can give my thoughts on that if you want. especially do. since, like, do Well, it. okay, because this is why you bring me on. The UFC is a joke organization. Dana White's a fucking hack. And anyone that thinks it's a funny idea to expose people that are financially obligated to fight or they lose their career, being forced to fight in a pandemic where somebody tests positive is beyond a joke. And no, UFC Shields, you don't get to say, but they were trying to enforce social distancing. No, they fucking weren't. Look at the media photos you're lying the ufc is lying you are a hack and you deserve to be called a bootlicker stop making excuses for an organization that thinks putting their fighters at risk more than they have to is funny end cut no fuck you jack's like i get to take the hottest take on this that's all
1: i I have to say dana was like shaking hands and fist bumping fighters as they were facing off like yeah that kind of that kind of says the whole story didn't it
2: yeah, he he fist bumped Jacare and then if uh, I believe it was a <laughs> right. who came up and hugged him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's I it mean it was terrific. There is no there is no excuse for it. And before the card and after the card, uh, like it was all this was all stuff that we were discussing and and it clearly is going to shade the event forever. But once again, that is uh that's not why we're here. We are here today to gloat. To gloat and to uh, to brag. And to drag our big brass balls all over the keyboard because we were right about this main event. Hacks, you were the most right of anybody when you came on. I feel like Justin Gaethje's performance against Tony Ferguson was almost like to a T the, the game plan that you drew up that you talked to us about when you came on and 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 discussed it with us so in in a broad sense like what was it about gacy that was just so effective against ferguson
0: i mean i think if you were an analyst and you wanted to design a great fight or like a a fight of the year plan for any fighter, regardless of the lineup, it would be a few simple things, right? It would be a simple approach built on tools that either the fighter understands or they've like shown an appreciation of in their career. You would want uh, the plan to have movement that has a clear sense of purpose. So uh, if you're weaving, you're not just weaving for the sake of weaving, you're weaving in a direction and a context that breaks the other guy's line of sight. So you can either hit him, or you're breaking his path to his best weapon, etc. You also want to have some kind of consistent method of ensuring your best weapons are relevant, and then you want some simple offensive striking or countering tools that follow setups that make sense, right? And and if you could find a way to lean on the athlete's natural athletic power, um, that would be great. Like I would say, those are kind of the the like uh, checklist of. You you fought a pretty good fight. You planned pretty well. I think if you picked three of those for any fighter, we'd be going on about how great the camp was and that was a good fight. Uh, Gaethje did all of them, and he did all of them in ways that were like put together to beat the shit out of somebody that fought the way Tony Ferguson did. Like, that's... You know, WoW is is probably the, the right place to start. I mean, he... Just to take one of those and expand on it a bit. He found a way to put one of his strengths, which I think everyone would agree would be his phenomenal leg kicking, he found a way to make it relevant in terms of limiting Tony's mobility, which I think we all thought he was going to do, and then he put a spin on it that I don't think anyone really saw coming. Um, He found a way to use his leg kicks to establish him as a credible threat on the outside. So even at the range where we feel like Tony is one of the best of the division, Tony didn't look like he was very good at all. But I think, uh, yeah, I, obviously I'd prefer to throw it on to you guys to expand it on a bit, but that's kind of where it starts for me. He had a simple plan, he ticked all of the boxes, and he found a way to put all of his best tools into the plan and execute them pretty close to flawlessly.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great place to start with it. I think because after the fight, and I kind of pushed it out in like a day and a half, uh, I wrote um, the... Post like the post-mortem on it, uh, and called it closing the door. And I think that really was how, like, because as you mentioned, it was a couple simple tools that Gaethje used. It was mostly, the one, the leg kicks, and Tony looked fine on the outside, but he still wasn't the more damaging party. But for the most part, it was a win in the pocket, and there is where he wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing, like, really long, flashy combinations that I think we'd have expected someone like Dustin Poirier to be a nightmare to uh, Ferguson for, But it was pretty much just two punches. It was the right hand as Tony entered and the left hook as he exited. And the left hook, he eventually started when he started, like, missing on it. As Tony backed out too quickly, he started throwing it to the body and started chasing Tony out with it. It was was a masterclass on using a couple tools with a great deal of versatility. But not just versatility. It was selecting those tools quickly for someone like Tony Ferguson. Because a lot of what Tony does is... Built on just, as we mentioned in the first Tony podcast, or I guess this is the second Tony podcast now, but as we mentioned on the other Hacks podcast, uh, is that a lot of what he does is covered by just confidence and being able to get away with things because he has the initiative. And Gaethje didn't try to out-initiative out-initiative him per se. He more just took away any initiative that he could have shown by just cutting him off at the pass with the right hand every time he stepped forward. It was brilliant.
1: I yeah, I think I agree with everything that was said. Um I thought Gagechi won every round and I think that Hacks you brought up something in our chat that that has really kind of resonated with me is that this might be the technical turnaround of the decade. Maybe last decade. Um in terms of fighters that we've seen because this wasn't just a this wasn't just like an adjustment within the context of the fighter that Gaethje has built himself to be. Like, this wasn't... It wasn't like the Barboza fight, um, where he was still... You know, he was able to kind of... to draw out Barboza's kicks a bit, push him back, and convert within the clench. Like, there were tactical tools, but he was still playing in the same... the same field of the pressure fighter that he had built himself to be. Like, Gaethje was a like an outside counter puncher and he it's like he completely overhauled his his footwork and his ring craft and i like i want to underscore this because i think we you know we may spend some time today talking about a potential gaichi versus khabib fight um this is something that just jumped out to me when I rewatched it is just that how difficult Gaethje is to back up to the cage. He's very difficult to push back in a straight line. Like he did kind of the one of the big things against Tony that I feel like or I should say he didn't do one major thing against Tony that everybody seems to do against Khabib. And that's just give up ground for no reason. Like he stood his ground. And like Serm said, there was just like it was a short right hand or a check hook waiting for Tony every time he wanted to step in he broke the line of attack well and you know he wasn't just it wasn't just throwing them in isolation like he would he would weave into them proactively like it's it was it was marvelous like his his actual just positioning in the cage and his his ability to to just stand his ground um that gives me a lot of confidence in him going forward.
2: Yeah, I think it's one thing that we expected from Gaethje, even as far back as the Johnson fight, where we were like, you know, if he faces Khabib, he's not going to fight a fight that isn't his. And I think that kind of simplification is what it takes to beat Khabib in a sense. Because after a certain point of takedown defense which, I mean, admittedly a lot of people don't have, but someone like Gaethje probably has it in my estimation. But after a certain point, right, you kind of need to simplify the fight with Khabib where you're not overthinking it, and I think that's where someone like Dustin Poirier had a lot of trouble. When Conor McGregor went out and did his pressure thing, it worked fairly well, and it would have worked better if he wasn't just, you know, if he didn't screw up in the first wrestling exchange. But I think the worry that I had with Gaethje after the Cerrone fight was that he would overthink the Khabib fight a bit more than my liking. Because if the first approach was too dumb to fail, the second approach would be too smart to succeed. And I think at this point, I can be confident in Gaethje being the best outfighter that Khabib will have faced. I mean, there are, I don't know how many great outfighters Khabib's faced to start with. I guess the best one would be like Michael Johnson, who's not really that good at outfighting. Um, but... Gaethje looked terrific. He's not only hard to pressure, he's dangerous to pressure, as you mentioned. Because, you know, when Tony just walked in and tried to force exchanges and force a pace, it just didn't work because Gaethje could counter him and end the exchange right there because he's such a massive bomber. So I think Khabib's going to have trouble regardless of which way Gaethje goes with that. I just, I think I'd still rather him pressure because it's kind of safer. And, you know, if he finds himself screwing up a little bit on the pressure, it's less debilitating than finding himself too close to the cage and just getting physically pushed there. But yeah, I think either way, Gaethje's going to be a handful for Khabib. I think the thing that I
0: like about, if you want to put it in brackets, the outfighting that Gaethje showed in this fight is that everything he's done is a natural extension of what he's already doing. He, w- When he's throwing low kicks at range, he's not just saying... The entire game, I will just I kick hard. I kick like a mule, I'll keep kicking you. He had transitions from his kicking into punches into the pocket. He's actually sat down with Trevor Whitman, who we could do a whole podcast gushing about. I think at this point, but um, or, or, or you know, when he's throwing his left hook, his, his right hand, everything fits together with what he we already know he's good at, and. I think the bit that got me most excited about that fight was, or at least personally that I really found interesting that was at the end of the fight, Gaethje started doing things that we really wanted to see Gaethje do more of at the start of the fight. He started pawing more with his jab. And he was doing it, I presume, because Tony's face was so busted up that you just want to smack that, right? Like that, that just screams to any fighter, beat the shit out of this guy's face. He's already bleeding. I think we all would have liked to, you know, particularly because Geishi seems to understand fairly efficient form and his movement seems fairly defensive, even when he is forced to concede ground or he makes a strategic choice to concede ground. So it would always be good to see a fighter like that jab more and who wouldn't have loved Geishi to work the body more. But when he started looking for those opportunities to do it at the end of the fight, I couldn't shake the feeling that, what was going through Gaethje's head and his corner's head was he's going to fall over. Just keep hitting him. Don't be stupid. And Gaethje was thinking, well, wouldn't this be a great opportunity to start doing some stuff outside of the plan that would be really great for me to fit into the plan. Because um, the other comment that I thought was really interesting was uh, Tooman in the chat had a, a huge obsession with why isn't Gaichi hitting the body. And I agree that that's a totally valid criticism. And I think in a lot of ways, I also, on the other side, completely understand why Geichi wasn't hitting the body, because did anyone seriously expect Tony to survive past the second round with the shellacking he was taking? He did, but he was taking so much damage, I can understand Geichi was thinking, oh, if I just keep hitting him a few more times, he'll fall over. And that also led to one of the most important moments in the fight where, well, between the rounds where Whitman sits Geishi down and essentially has that conversation you do, like, you know, when your son is just a little bit too proud and fucked up the spelling bee. He's like, okay, look, look, look. You're beating the shit out of him. You're winning the rounds, but you've got to slow down. You don't need to throw it 110% heat. Throw it 80 and you'll still knock him over. You'll, You'll still kill him. You know, basically, like, it was the slow down, don't go red ones, go faster, or I'll crump your noggin. Like, just... Just relax. And Geishi followed that direction with complete obedience, which is always exciting. Um, it's good when you see a fighter trust their camp. And secondly, the fact that we got to that point, the fact that Geishi was throwing a little bit too hard and probably putting himself at risk of exhaustion, yes, that's, a again, quotes, negative. It was a mistake, if you like. But it was a mistake that made a lot of sense in the context of the fight. And the fact that Geishi was able to pivot away from overextending his stamina, says that he knew he screwed up, he knew they planned better, and he was capable of making adjustments incredibly quickly. And I think those qualities, a bit more of jab and targeting the body, being able to see the big picture of where you've stepped away from what your game plan should be, that's what you need to beat the shit out of Khabib. You need a good game plan that's not too smart or too stupid, and you need some self-awareness. And I saw miles of that engage in this fight.
1: So extrapolating off that, um hacks i think you, you brought up a great point that when you it's kind of just the, the theme of adjustments i'll just kind of roll with that um like one of the one of the things that sparked that you know take 10% off your punches comment from Whitman was the the knockdown that Ferguson hit on on Gaethje which didn't score as a knockdown but it really sure looked like one um like i still thought gaethje i still thought gaethje won that round but it was it was really Ferguson's big moment of success and it was something that prompted Whitman to to sit Gaethje down and have him rethink a few things um was one of the things that was you know one of the things that sparked it was that Gachy was throwing too much into his punches as you pointed out but what impressed me the most watching it again was how Gaethje then adjusted to that so he like, he adjusted to that specific tactical exchange. He was folding over his lead hip, and then he was taking his head offline when he threw the uppercut to smother Tony's counter with his shoulder. Like, it was it was such a small thing, but it was, like, just the fact that he had the awareness to, like, see that specific exchange happening again when he looked for the uppercut, you know, listening to his corner's advice, throwing less into the punch, and then adjusting just with his own, you know, with his own uh posture and positioning, like that's that's the exact kind of stuff that you you love to see from fighters. It's it's so rare, but it was such a it was so smart and it was so immediate. And it was almost like it was almost like Whitman had trained that specific punch in you before and maybe he just he just kind of forgot about it in the first exchange when he got knocked down. And then from that point on, he like, he seemed to know exactly what to do. And he, he could read the exchange much better. And when he threw uppercuts, he just clobbered Tony.
2: Yeah, there were a ton of uh, little things that Gaethje did. And I think a lot of the criticism on Gaethje was that he was a bit unsubtle if you look at the earlier parts of his career. And I think a lot of us knew that that wasn't necessarily true. Like you don't give... Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier, the fights that Justin Gaethje did, without being, you know, fairly smart and fairly well prepared in exchanges as well as in the bigger picture. But I think one of the favorite things that Gaethje did consistently for me was weaving off the leg kick, because, and he eventually started turning that into the left hook, uh, or you know, just to stay safe. Because I think it showed how perfectly prepared he was, and it kind of reminded me of um, what Volkanovski did against Holloway in terms of you know just that very specific thing. It's like, okay, I know this counter is coming to the leg kick if I kick him too many times. How do I start, A, avoiding it, and B, putting it off? And he did it perfectly through the first round, and eventually he started, there was this one really cool exchange that uh, went around on Twitter right after, where he landed a counter leg kick, immediately weaved underneath and landed the leg kick, and I think a lot of people thought, oh, hey, he just thought of that in the moment. And that would be impressive, but I think it's arguably more impressive that he had the whole thing scouted and he had ideas for anything that tony wanted to do it was a thoughtful performance and i wouldn't say he was necessarily more dangerous than he used to be but i would say he's more thoughtful than he used to be
0: i think uh, two other things that really stick out for me in that fight um i have seen the comment on twitter which you know again removes a piece of my faith in humanity is people saying geishi was too predictable to which i think is bullshit. if a left hook and a right hand are enough to win you the fight why mess around with combinations or anything complex keep throwing what works especially if the other guy clearly has no idea how to counter it until he falls over particularly because again uh, from an efficiency standpoint, your form and your confidence and your pacing is best with what you know and what you've trained. So if what you know and what you've trained is knocking the other guy over, why risk anything else? And the second thing for me is um to take it back to the to the Max Volkanovski fight because, um you know, I've written a few essays in chat about this. But for me, that fight was Volkanovski understanding that he had a, a – relative advantage in power and he could use this relative advantage in power to begin and end although he also got good shots in in the middle exchanges so that he wasn't just winning them from the perspective of max going oh wow uh, this volume thing isn't working so well for me winning them from the judges but also just winning them in terms of damage and Volkanovsky is a great fighter. He does not have Justin Gaethje's grinding, murderous power, which can both knock you out and, if he hits you enough times in the ribs, make you regret being alive. And I would also say that uh, I feel like, in part because of Tony's um, unpredictability, he probably has more power in the lightweight division relative to Max so geishi forced a power centric game using his power scientifically to dominate exchanges in a way that i think is even more impressive than the max volk fight because it was very simple it was very efficient and it was both of those things against a guy who's just weird and unpredictable and can somehow make you fall over with a phantom uppercut very strange (laughs)
1: um well then i think we should jump a little bit to that too because that's th- that might be an interesting contrasting piece is what did you guys think of of tony and his performance um for me i something that i pointed out like I, I can admit where i where i was right in my analysis and where i was wrong i was right in the sense that i figured that tony's messy stance and his tendency to um He just either just gets too wide, he's too narrow, he's completely squared up, Um, you know, whatever it is. His tendency to sometimes ignore his stance was going to hurt him against someone who could leg kick, but also leg kick in sequence like Gaethje could. Um, And the other thing about Tony that I uh, I pointed out pre-fight was that Tony does not typically like punching down. Uh, he's always been, if you look back at some of his older fights, he's generally uncomfortable when guys can get in on him and, and under him. So if you get, this is part of one of the reasons that like Lando Venata gave him fits, uh, in their first round because Venata is short and he's fast and he was, you know, at least at the time, good at kind of reading some of the longer looping shots that tony was throwing and he would just he was just able to get under him this is not something until tony started jabbing he was having difficulty and gaichi keyed in on that um as we said we pointed out like his weaving before but it was the fact that it was the fact that gaichi was also kind of he was kind of breaking his own plane of attack like he would he would bend his knees and he would like enter the pocket with his knees bent and folding over his hips, trying to, you know, like draw out counters, like he was proactively weaving under Tony's jab, which was extremely, extremely nice. And you know, when they only when they were like chest to chest, could could Ferguson land it. When Gachi was able to kind of change up his levels, uh, like I said, Tony has a difficult time punching down. Where I did not get this fight right is I really thought that Ferguson was gonna be in a much, much worse like physical state than he was. I, I expected him to be a lot more athletically zapped than he showed up. Um and like I said, I you know, we picked I think Serm and I both picked Gagey by early finish. You know, I yeah. don't think I don't think any of us had much of a sense of what this fight was gonna look like if if Ferguson was still there after round three. Um so just some talking points there. What do you think?
2: Uh, I think Tony, and in, in a lot of ways, I think Tony deserves a couple of props for the fight. Uh, and durability was probably the biggest one because we really did not expect, and I don't think anyone expected, after the Tony, uh, the, the other Tony, Anthony Pettis, after the Pettis fight, um, that he would be so resilient. And it's... Pretty insane, because if you look at Tony's career, he's had a ton of messy fights. You look at the Lando fight, you look at the Pettis fight, you even look at the Cerrone fight. uh, Parts of the RDA fight, although RDA is not really the puncher to make that matter a ton. But I think Tony's absurd chin in this fight was a huge surprise, and especially considering how he cut weight twice for it, which is, you know, it's admittedly and obviously really, really dumb to do. But he did it, and he came in with a chin of the gods somehow. Um, but and I think the other thing here to mention with Tony is that he seemed to think about the fight more than, uh, more than I expected him to. More than he even thought about a fight like Cerrone, where you know Cerrone he's he's immensely more solvable than Justin Gaethje. He's you know if you're a pressure fighter and you work on pace, Cerrone's easy. If you hit the body, Cerrone's easy, and. Ferguson just didn't really do that, so I didn't expect him to come out, you know, punching off kicks against Gaethje and uh, jabbing in, drawing out counters as he did in the first round. It was it was a solid performance from Tony Ferguson that I think deserves more than he lost every round deserves, but, I mean, he did, but it was, it wasn't a close fight, but it was an impressive fight from Ferguson, given what we've come to expect of him.
0: I uh- I'm not going to say Tony Ferguson's durability. I totally saw it coming or anything like that. I mean, I've said from the beginning, trying to predict when Tony Ferguson snaps is in, an impossible science. Like, that is that is like some astrology. You know, you're Taurus. What are you going to feel about your next-door neighbor shit? But I, you're I, the only what fighter I,
1: in MMA who has a weirder chin than Nico Price.
0: I, I'm not so sure about that, though. I mean, the, the two points I have made in the chat a fair few times is, number one, uh, I think one of the reasons that it looks like Tony is more hittable or seems to fight up to the level of his opposition, even perhaps in terms of his chin, is, uh, number one, I think Tony has a bit of, I mean, every fighter does, but I think Tony's got a lot of the John Lineker chin. If he sees this shot coming, he has, like, a three times critical multiplier to his damage avoidance. Like, I think Tony is one of, in particular, is a fighter that does an exceptionally good job of, well, uh, getting hit uh, if he sees the shot coming because he really seemed to start having problems when Geishi had busted up his eye. And that's true of every fighter, but I think that's especially true of Tony Ferguson. Tony Ferguson is like one of those old world gunslingers. If he can look you in the eyes, you're about to shoot him, Something, you know, he just doesn't fall over. That's the first thing. The second thing is I think Tony has been hit a lot in his career, but I do think he gets hit a lot on the extremes of the other person's range a lot more than people realize. Now, from the perspective of having CTE or boxers dementia or however you want to put that, no bueno, that's still a terrible exchange. But I think from the just from the perspective of preserving his chin to the maximum degree that you can preserve his chin as a fighter in his fighting career, I do think those two qualities together explain why sometimes he just looks like he refuses to die. And I think if you combine that with the fact that he did look more thoughtful, did look more prepared, and did look like he was really fighting to the level of his opposition you put those two qualities together with perhaps we just did underestimate the degree of his athletic decline and i think you have enough to almost explain why he was eating damage like a sponge and you know still (laughs) was still able to do a dance in the hospital what was it like eight hours after he got shellacked uh you know he's an enigma. Don't get me wrong, but in my experience, and to channel the words of my old coaches, a lot of enigmas are just people that understand something you haven't figured out yet, and I think that might be true with Tony's chin to some degree.
1: I think that's a good observation, um, and that's like that's something that I, even Connor Rebush has said for a while. And his like pet theory about Tony Ferguson is that he might have bad eyesight. And so early in the fights, he's just completely unsure of his range. And then later in the fight, once he kind of gets to feel feel the range a bit, once he kind of gets to feel it out, um, he doesn't tend to get dropped after round one very much. Um, but it did get uncomfortable um, as the fight wore on. It, it got really kind of disturbing by the end of the fight. Um, and I think a lot of that did start with, uh, Geachy's jab, like, I mean, his his jab, he went body head. I mean, he's body jabbed before, but like, this is one of the first times I can remember like Geachy consistently putting the jab first. And I mean, it's like a it's like an Ernie Shavers type jab. It's like he he really just kind of the natural like weight to his mechanics. It is just like a shotgun jab type, and. I was like, I was kind of stunned at, um, I thinking back, I was like really trying to, to, to rack my brain. I was like, when was the last time someone jabbed with Tony Ferguson successfully? Cause I don't really think he hasn't really fought a lot of people with great jabs. I mean, Pettis, Cerrone, RDA is an open stance. The only one that comes to mind is I think Kevin Lee kind of dropped Tony with a jab in the first round, but it's Kevin Lee, and I don't think Kevin Lee has much of a (laughs) has the feel for for striking and jabbing the way Gaethje does.
2: Yeah, I mean it was it kind of reminded me uh, Gaethje's jab of uh, Yoel Romero's against uh, Whitaker in the rematch, where like it was it wasn't the kind of setting up. Kind of jab that I think we usually describe as a good jab. It was just after a certain point, Gaethje just needed to touch Ferguson where his face was already broken, and he just beat the crap out of him. And yeah, I think in general Ferguson, he's benefited a lot from being the guy who leads the dance, and a lot of that is his jab. Um, I think the fight also kind of recontextualized the um, Ferguson Michael Johnson fight because I think this is something that you said, Danny, when we watched the fight. Uh, before the Gaethje fight, is that maybe Ferguson just doesn't look that good closing down a counterpuncher. And before the fight, I think I mentioned um, that Gaethje being the biggest and one of the few counterpunchers that uh, Tony had faced was something to watch out for because a lot of what Tony does positionally doesn't work against guys who are comfortable hitting him when he squares up. And RDA was, but RDA is... Uh, he's RDA. He's not He's not a power hitter. So I think that also recontextualized what it means for Ferguson to close down a power combo hitter like Michael Johnson, uh, which, you know, he's improved a lot since then, but it still kind of means something when you're like, how could I have seen this coming, if that makes sense? Uh, It's something that Phil McKenzie mentioned, that early fights tell more than maybe we want them to, and that's a good example of that. Uh, But, yeah, I think overall it's just Gaethje's jab was just, really, really mean, in a way that I don't think I've seen before from him. I mean,
0: I I just kind of have this, this feeling, almost this philosophy, that, like, Geishi has kind of strung together a bunch of tools that we almost don't see ever in MMA. And to be honest, sometimes I feel like if boxers could pull off the combination of being comfortable with your left hook on the inside, you know, reach down for me, boy, I've got something coming up for you to reword the old Joe uh, Joe Frazier, uh, a jab that they're confident doing work with Off its damage because i i think so many fighters are locked into this mentality that a jab is not a damaging weapon a jab is a an enabler for other weapons and geishi has like that rage against the machine jab that like fuck you i won't do what you tell me and just busting up people's faces um i agree that the the geishi puzzle the the counter puncher who is confident in the pocket and has. Great natural power is something that Tony is probably also always going to struggle against. I do also wonder though that if we get too fixated on the stylistic matchup that he, in theory, represents um, for Tony, we overlook that he has a pretty extraordinary skill set for MMA fighters, and the way that skill set fits together is pretty intimidating. I, I just don't want to lose track too much of what Gaethje's accomplished in this fight, because we get fixated on the fact that he might be a bad stylistic matchup in other ways
1: yeah I think that's fair um I think it was it was more of an open question going into the fight is like you know I mean in in a a basic sense it was like you know I was like I don't think I haven't really seen Tony beat a lot of big power punchers lately um but if that's your if that's your takeaway after the fight then you've completely missed the point like you, you clearly don't understand what you're watching um But I agree. I think it's like this is a it's a performance that should be celebrated. It's not just a it's not just like an archetype that you can look to and say, oh, that'll you know, that's a that's a bad one for Tony. He can't you know, we've seen Tony overcome fights that seemed like difficult style matchups on the surface. Like that's something we know Tony Ferguson can do. And he just he just wasn't able to hear, and I think uh, you said a lot of that goes down to Gechi's remarkable skill set. But I do want to bring up one thing before we, because we do need to talk a little bit about Cejudo Cruz in a bit. Um, but we can spend some time on this next segment. Is that uh, like what's what's next? Like I know I know it's Gechi Khabib, and we can talk a little bit about that. What do we expect from Tony Ferguson next? Like what's the what's the the progression here?
2: Uh, I, I really want to be confident in him because I was, uh, I was very, very impressed with Tony coming into the, or going out of this rather. Uh, but I think it was, it was too damaging a fight and he's too deep into his career for me to expect him to look great. That said, I mean, there are definitely winnable matchups. If you look at a guy like Dan Hooker, who might be able to just like catch him early, but definitely, definitely gets drowned late if he lets Tony hang around that long. Uh, that's going to be rough for Dan Hooker and it's a good comeback for Tony Ferguson. But I mean, overall it's just, it's hard to find someone against whom I'd be confident in Tony. This Tony I'd be confident in against someone like Charles Oliveira because he looked durable enough to let Oliveira get to the, I don't want to be here anymore phase. But just as a function of the damage that he took, I think the door is starting to close slash continuing to close on Ferguson's a real contender. Um, it's, it sucks because i wasn't super impressed or super interested rather in the Kabib matchup match up after a certain point but i think tony he's a very instructive fighter as we mentioned in the um in the dedicated tony podcast and he deserved better than to get mulched by uh justin gaethje at the end of a massive win streak but uh it's it, it's hard to it's hard to say
0: I think uh, take a year off. Tell the UFC to go fuck itself if they say to fight in that year. Because don't don't when you take a beating like that, don't take a fight in, in with at least a year to actually see your specialists recover your health. You know, uh, step A, learned that the hard the hard way, I think. Um, and and after and then that year, maybe talk to some really high level coaches. Um, screw MMA ones. Just bring in some really high level coaches in different disciplines try and find some ways to be safer in what you do well based on those fights don't change you just maybe try and clean things up a bit and honestly i don't care who he fights after that year um i think that he's always going to give you compelling and exciting fights and i don't mean i don't care who he fights and i don't care about tony i mean more i actually think who he fights less isn't important it's going to be all of the little things he does with respect to his health and his career and his family that matter to me right now and when he comes back hopefully in a year um then we can start talking about where he stands and see how he is after that time to rest of course that's my theoretical perfect the obvious answer is he probably fights hooker in three months and either gets knocked out or drowns him something like that is probably what's going to happen and i'll be very sad when it does even if he wins because he'll probably take a lot of shots to the face
1: i think this is actually something that you brought up hacks you were like you saw when we talked to you about this you were like Tony Ferguson's story is, is it, like he will lose eventually like you like you said I don't think that this is a really sustainable style for you know a tremendous amount of time but it's important that we enjoy him while we have him um, and I've kind of taken that to heart because like I was rooting for Gaethje hard in this fight and I really I, I'm excited to see Gaethje get a crack at Khabib but um i think that I, I think i'm completely with that i hope that tony doesn't tony doesn't owe i said that before before the fight i was like tony doesn't owe the ufc anything he doesn't owe them any more of his of his body or his blood he's he's given them enough and so i hope that he gets time to focus on himself and refine his own skill set or at the very least just take enough time off. Like I hope he just, I hope they don't have any kind of pressure to, to to bring him back. Honestly, I I said to the heavy hands guys before we started recording that like part of me thinks that Tony looks a little bit relieved that this, that this is over. Like that this, you know, this fight with Khabib is probably not going to happen, but it's the fact that he can, He looks a little, he looks a little relaxed. He looks like he, you know, he doesn't have to, like, chase this dragon anymore. There's no more. He doesn't have to worry about, like, pullouts or injuries. He can just, he can just breathe a bit. He looked, he's looked more level and more relieved since the fight ended, I think. So I think part of it is just, he's just kind of, he's just able to exhale that this is over. Maybe that's just speculation. Maybe not. But um, I hope so, and it's looked that way to me a little bit. Like you said, dancing in the hospital, and you know that what he's posted on Twitter and so forth. He's uh, I mean, he seems, he seems more relaxed and released now that the fight's over and that he lost. Because it's almost like the worst thing in the world that he could have possibly imagined just happened, and it's okay, and life goes on. Because that's gen- that's just how it works in this sport. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe I th- I'm just pontificating, but that's how I f- that's how I see it. I mean,
2: it's it's something that we heard from uh, I believe it was Rose Namajunas after her fight with Jessica Andrade, is that you know uh, she was I believe the word she used was relieved, something like that, like a weight was off her shoulders that she didn't have to carry the load of being champion. And Tony wasn't actually champion at any point, unfortunately. But you know, it's a, a long win streak is something. It's kind of like an undefeated record, right? It's It's hard to maintain that to the standards that people hold them to. And now that that's gone, it's just Tony can go out and fight. And he's still at the top. The loss didn't make it that he's, you know, unranked and has to work his way back up. He just doesn't have the win streak anymore. And now he just has to go out, uh, face who the UFC tell him to, hopefully after that long break. And it's just, you know, he's, he's a fighter now. He's a contender still, but he's not, you know... He doesn't have the expectations that he used to. I mean, all of this, you know, it's just armchair psychology, I think. It's it's hard to actually tell unless he comes out and says it. But it's, it's a possibility. And, you know, it's hard to see him come back at full form after that uh, beatdown. But I really hope he does.
0: I'm just, you know, my attitude in a very, very TLDR way is, I'm glad Tony doesn't have to be the guy anymore. He can just be Tony because fuck being the guy. It makes you into a UFC stooge.
1: Yeah.
2: Perfect way to put it.
1: I'm with it. Um, okay, I think we've talked about that enough. Uh, that was, Jesus, was that like 40 minutes a segment? God damn. Anyway, it's an, it was an important fight, important performance. There's a lot of mileage out of it. But I do think that for the the second half... Or maybe not half, but this last portion of the podcast, we do need to spare some words on Sehudo Cruz. Um, Henry Sehudo, of course, retired after the fact, um, after a second-round stoppage over Cruz. Cruz accused the ref of being drunk and s- smoking cigars. I don't really, I don't really know, uh, but it was funny. It was one of the best, like one of the best. <laughs> complaints a fighter has had about a stoppage that i've ever heard but what did we think of this one because i think I, I, I like again i i think i overestimated the the physical decline of dominant Cruz. like he didn't actually show up looking as washed as i expected this wasn't like watching velasquez versus Nganu. but um to me he did look a bit solved like the you know the dominic cruz puzzle i think has been he's kind of been figured out a bit and i don't i I don't know that there was anything that like a prime dominic cruz could have really done a ton differently here yeah
2: i i agree i think Cejudo being a dedicated kicker and I think that was kind of the question coming into this fight is whether Cejudo would fight the right fight early on because Cruz has always been and we we expected him to be a bit declined but if he came in in his prime form Cruz was always monstrously durable in terms of chin so and he was very 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 reliable in terms of cardio so if Cejudo turned it on and started kicking mid-fight it wasn't necessarily going to work if Cruz had already gotten three rounds running around the cage. But Cejudo came out to his credit and uh, kicked the crap out of Cruz's leg, pressured very, very hard, and, uh, you know, just kicked him in the head, knocked him out. Uh, One thing I will say with regard to the stoppage and Keith Peterson smoking cigars is uh, given the main events this week, I think Cruz is somewhat correct in terms of being given less leeway than average. But the stoppage was good looking at it from an objective sense. It's just that, you know, when Walt Harris is allowed to get punched in the head for 30 minutes and Anthony Smith is allowed to get his teeth punched out for 40 minutes and uh, even Tony Ferguson didn't get stopped for way longer than he should have. I think it could have gone on a little bit longer. I just don't really see the point when Cejudo had him solved. And I think uh, I'm not really the one to give Cejudo a ton of credit for any of his performances but this was a very very good one and as, as far as Cruz goes I'd, I'd like to see him back against someone like Corey Sandhagen who should be somewhat forgiving for him in terms of someone who can you know who can be taken down and is going to walk into him but it's hard to see him being the Cruz that we know even if this performance was very very similar to that I don't know it was just a weird depressing fight that went um somewhat similarly to what I expected it to.
0: So uh, for that fight, I kind of watched it with a supreme indifference, Um, partially because I just don't think Kraus deserves the fight. Uh, The SO came in, sat down, watched it, watched the knockout, tapped me on the shoulder and said, hudo so watched some tape and that that's that's pretty much the fight. I mean Sahuido fought how somebody with Sahuido's incredible athletic ability should fight that fight and he won that fight because he fought it the correct way and yeah the stoppage was probably a little bit early but I sometimes think that when Cruz talks about if a stoppage is um too early or too late he talks about it from the imperial perspective of the great Dominic Cruz who defended bantamweight titles and it's like you're not that anymore son like you ain't all that it's been a long time since you fought you got dropped multiple times in the last one you know Cejudo was the dominant champion like yeah it was a bit early but I mean like I don't know it's I understand why the ref put it out there and he was getting his ass beat. So, you know, I I just think that that fight went how it was supposed to go and good on Cejudo for fighting the right fight. Um, He seemed to have learned all of the lessons that were used against Kraz from like the TJ fight. And I think in a way I had more respect for uh, Cejudo winning that fight the way he did compared to somebody like Cody, because Cejudo just kind of looked like he made a bunch of basic adjustments, you know? It didn't look like he needed to strategize all that much, because he didn't, and, you know, good on him. I just wish he didn't retire because I want to see him fight Yan.
1: Yep. I'm pretty much in that same boat. I mean, that was... Uh, that That's kind of what I mean is that I, I know a lot of a lot of the prevailing opinion about this fight was that Cruz wins this fight super easily in his prime. And honestly, after seeing it, I'm not I'm not sure if I agree, because Cruz like one of Cruz's biggest fundamental issues. And this is an issue that I think would would just transfer to just about anybody since Bantamweight has become such a dynamic division is that Cruz just isn't he's just not really that dangerous. Like he's just not really dangerous in exchanges. He's not really dangerous with his individual weapons. He's like, and so if you have someone who just isn't isn't worried about what's coming back at them, whether they're defensively you know squared away or if they're just you know they're just one of the toughest people you've seen in the sport. Like Cejudo, there's no real like what the what the fuck is preventing you from just kicking Cruz's legs on the way out. And just trying to kind of just just corral him with body kicks and then kick low and if he tries to exchange you can just throw back um i can and as far as the retirement thing goes like i can't i can't really fault any fighter who's made enough money for dipping out early like you know regardless of my selfish opinions do i still want to see Cejudo Yan absolutely like that is probably one of the most Interesting fights, exciting fights that the UFC could possibly make. I would love to see that fight. But when it comes to a sport like this, I mean, shit, if this is, I'm going to assume that this is the last time we're going to see Dominic Cruz fight. And if this is ostensibly the last time that we see Henry Zahudo f- fight, I mean, which ending would you rather have? Like, you know, would you rather be the guy who's it gets kneed in the face and you know smashed on the ground and complains about a late stoppage after four years of you know being out of practice. Or would you rather you know go out make, getting the closest thing you can to a money fight, making you know you. It's not like you haven't. It's not like you haven't fought good fighters. Like it's not like you've been. Yeah, you know, I, I realize I don't. I don't like that Cejudo decided to take this fight. But if you're you know you're looking for a payday, you could probably do a lot worse. And he's just taking his money and. And leaving without taking an enormous amount of you know brain trauma so i agree selfishly i kind of wish we could see more from cejudo especially because it looked like this looked like a fighter who has finally started to to figure it out and you know unfortunately it's just being cut short
2: yeah i think the answer to that that first question uh what's keeping guys from exchanging with cruz is probably the, the takedown threat and that's what made uh, Cejudo kind of awful for Cruz going in, aside from just being a hyper-athletic pressure fighter, is you're probably not going to take him down and hold him down. And even if you do take him down, he's just going to get back up and not be worried about the takedown. So I think it, there are winnable fights for the Cruz that we saw, I think, in the Bantamweight Top 10. There are even you know old guys like Rafael Asuncao, who probably still beats him in the pocket, but you know could just get volumed and taken down. And
1: They could do Rob sp- Font. Oh yeah, Cruz, that's Cruz
2: that's definitely winnable.
1: On, that's that's fair.
2: That's definitely winnable. I mean, I, and even someone like Jimmy Rivera, I think Rivera would beat him, but it wouldn't be like a wash. It's just that it's hard to see Cruz, even without Cejudo in the division, becoming champion with guys like Marlon Moraes and Peter Yan in the mix. It's just it's as close to impossible as we can say that something is in the sport and. Even though Dominic Cruz has come back and done the impossible once, doing it twice is just a different tier of impossible. Like, there's impossible and there's impossible. So, yeah, I mean, if if Cruz is done, he's had a great career. If Cejudo's done, he's had a great career. I think Cejudo's career is benefiting more from name value than the actual form of the guys he's fought. If you look at, you know, TJ Dillashaw at 125 and Cruz off a layoff. uh, But it does have some actual depth to it. If, even if you discount the DJ win, which wasn't actually a win, there's Juicy Formiga, who's terrific. There's Sergio Pettis, who's terrific. There's Dominic Cruz, who looked in fine form off four years off. Like You can't really fault him for the circumstances. You can fault him for not fighting the real contenders. But it's as you said, there's only so long a fighter has to make money in this sport. And Cejudo took that shot. He has a legacy, so that's fine. I kind of see those two as
0: they took some fights, they won some fights, they lost some fights. I think Krause is probably at his athletic limit. I don't think he has the power to be a viable threat to the title anymore, not with like fighters who have a bit more power and lots of volume and wrestling threat, like Aljo or Yan, who just murders people. So, you know, I I would love to see uh, Krause bow out here because I think that fight actually, in a way, proved his last great theory that. A lot of ring rust is the product of fighters that aren't disciplined and don't prepare mentally. He looked good. It's just I don't think his style can take him any further, and I don't think Krause has anything to prove, so I hope he retires. And yeah, I just plus one what Danny said. Um, I'd love to see Suhudo stay on and fight, but brain damage is brain damage, and if you've got the money, get out. And and let's be honest, if there's any fighter in the UFC, assuming Suhudo was still in it, that... We know the UFC would just wheel out every time a card was down. Ten years from now, so they can get a few more holes knocked in their brain, it'd be gold medal in Olympic wrestling, Henry Cejudo. So, you know, good on you. Like, play the UFC before they play oh, you. Get out while you still point. can.
1: That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, he would absolutely be someone that they would use to like bolster new guys. If he stayed in, if he stayed in the game for way too long, they would. That is you're at you're completely right that the, he would what's like a downgraded what's like a super downgraded version of like Pedro Munoz or or John Lineker Douglas de Silva de Andraj, maybe even less than that they it would be someone like that that they could just throw to young guys and they would just figure out and they'd get a good name on their on their resume and you know over time it would just accumulate so Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really apt point. Um, I do. I want to spare a few words before we go on Engano versus Rosenstroy because this was hilarious, and uh, Serum and I have. um, I mean, it's heavyweight. Egg on on our faces. Yeah, I mean, it's heavyweight. On one hand, like there's no there's no right answer. Who cares? Like it's whatever happens, happens. I guess. But on the other hand, this is one that we absolutely like felt like we had figured out and we were like like oh you know what <laughs> i think it is gonna be like a, a Derek lewis kind of fight i think Rosenstroke has the tools to make inganu look really bad and inganu just just bum rushed him with the ugliest blitz i've ever seen um before the broadcast Hacks was making fun of us for um for picking against inganu so uh Hax, have your laughs
0: uh, somebody put the Nelson months ha ha in, I guess. But oh, I love Nganu. I really do. At this point, he's just such a great. He's just such a boy. Like he's terrible technically, as much as he seems to be as good a human. Um, I I just believed him when he said that the reason that he shut down against um against the Black Beast was because you know he'd never had anyone beat the shit out of him the way uh, Stiffer did. So, you know, I just kind of. I feel the same way with the Ngannou train as I do about uh, Tony Ferguson. I love it. I love him. I always try and bet for him unless he fights uh, Stipe. And, yeah, the thing about Rosenstrick is um, he has good things in theory for keeping Ngannou at range and scaring him. Uh, but he didn't have, to me, the wrestling threat or the body punching that Stippe does to to actually dissuade Ngannou from some point, going like full lizard brain and just jumping him, like, you know, like two men and four of his boys in an alleyway. So I, I just, I don't know, I just thought that would happen. And and I was surprised people didn't think it would. I, I I just love Nganu. I just turn my brain off when I talk about that guy and how he fights. And I encourage everybody to do the same because you will never be disappointed. He's a lovely man. All hail, Francis and
1: It was funny. Like, I think it was especially just funny the fact that, like, we thought we had it. I thought I had it figured because it was like. (laughs) I was like, okay, what is in, what does Rosenstreck do well? And it was in theory, like this is the, the that is all that my analysis was based on was just something I've seen from Ngannou in the past and some tools that Rosenstroke has shown. I was like, okay, Rosenstreck can jab, he can kick legs, and he can fight at an agonizingly slow pace without losing an ounce of focus. Um the, the last fighter that I've seen who had those three tools, you know, who wasn't just going to isn't just gonna like you know throw a rainbow overhand and get decked like jds who isn't just gonna bum rush into the clinch and have their their knees snap off like kane the last time i saw a fighter do that was Derek lewis and so in my head it made all the sense in the world and then the fight happened and it was the 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 worst pick that i'm probably going to have this year
2: I mean, I think it's kind of the frustrating thing about Ngannou and heavyweight in general, that matchup dynamics can just be, like, completely ignored. And I think that's what's annoying about talking about Nganu Stipe, too, which is that how do we know he's not just going to ignore the dynamics that we've already saw? Because at, at some point, is just not going to be there anymore, right? And even now, it's tough to see him being 100%. But... Like, at what point does skill matter at heavyweight is a question that's really being challenged by Ngannou, because the answer with him is it doesn't at all. That's, you know, run forward. Who cares? If you can't be hurt and you can hurt people very, very efficiently, just run at him. Like, no one gives a fuck. Whatever.
0: He really is like MMA's definition of just a bra moment. Like, oh, how can you people not enjoy it? It's just so <laughs> brainless. Like, And I'm not even saying that he is, is brainless because I think, and I think Jack Slack has really come out to bat for him, and I respect it because I agree with it. The improvement he's shown over what he was at the start of the UFC is enormous. It's just there wasn't a lot to begin with. And uh, it's just he's hysterical. All of his fights are hysterical. Even the Black Beast one was hysterical. And yeah, I do think people perhaps read a little bit too much into the the fight versus the Beast. Sometimes I think people forget Stipe beat the shit out of him for 25 minutes and probably could have finished him if he really just wanted to push
2: it. Should have um, been that... stopped in the fourth.
0: Yeah, that's that's going to dissuade you. For for a fighter who is young and has tremendous heart and tremendous passion, but perhaps not the best um experience fighting like in Garnu, I could totally see that Stipe beat down, putting you in a rut for six months, for nine months. And I think it did. But you know, that that is with hindsight.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah, that may be it. And just like we may have just read a little bit too much into the Lewis fight. I mean, it's still a question. I like I still uh, this is the thing. Is like he Ngannou is basically like the the apex black beast now because I sort of wonder like what the fuck is the ceiling like if Stepe you know Stepe may be pretty physically declined and like I don't even know what the hell his next fight's gonna be but like I mean barring that who else is gonna like who else is actually even gonna be able to contend? Blagoa Ivanov? I mean, shit. Like, I could see that. I don't know. I don't know. But it's it was hilarious, and it was the it was like the worst pick that that Surim and I have had in a long ass time. But it was it was yeah. incredible.
0: Let's I mean, just he Daniel Cormier off into the into the sun.
1: I think he I think he does at this point because I don't yeah. think I don't think DC has any way to get in on Nganu other than the way that Kane did. And if you just rush if you just rush to rush to the clinch with Nganu, I mean, he'll he'll probably just muscle you out. while He's at his freshest. It's when it's it's people who are actually able to like faint and you know, do setups on him and and draw him in and then shoot. Like, and I don't think DC can really do that. So, yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah. I think I'm picking Nganu.
2: <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed the talk of uh, Nganu versus John Jones because I mean that's kind of oh, it's not. Funny. It's not actually a thing, but they're talking about it like it could be a thing. It's never gonna be a thing. But it's it's basically just the the meme with the, you know, X go burr where it's, oh no, you can't just hit John Jones really hard. He's so technical and can wrestle you and Nganu's like hey, maker, go burr.
0: Imagine if he knocked out Jones and DC in consecutive fights with body punches. Just, oh, I think MMA Twitter would eat itself. I,
1: I if that fight gets made, I'm, I'm, I'm riding for Nganu. Like that would be a ride or die pick. If either of those fights get made, I, I'm completely in your corner there, Hacks. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was hilarious, and uh, I don't. There's not really a lot of technical analysis to be done, but I, I do think I agree with some of your points. Is that maybe. Maybe we read a little too much into that Lewis fight. And and who knows? Ngannou could, like... There's a very, very good chance that Ngannou holds the belt at some point. And uh, will someone eventually figure him out? Or is he just going to clopper people for the rest of the days? Time will tell. Um, but yeah, I think I'm good on this end. You guys, how do you feel?
2: Yeah, I mean, the only other important thing that happened was Calvin Cater. But we already had an episode on him. The other two events sucked. Uh, there's your there's your review um hacks anything else
0: i mean i think we should give a shout out to the dover gang at this point oh yeah dover you know, oh, i mean true. It, it's drew Dober, man like i mean what more are you gonna say like he does dober things
1: he's so hot what love him yeah i yeah when i was on heavy hands we uh they had me do uh we did like a bonus episode on and covered the anthony smith go over to share a card and uh i mean dober is dober is just awesome like he's i'm, I'm i am I'd love to see him they kind of noted that he's improving him and gaethje have almost had like opposite progression paths and like i you know we've talked before lightweight is getting kind of old like you know toddy ferguson I don't know how much longer Khabib's going to be fighting, especially if he takes a loss. I don't know how much longer Gaethje or Poirier is going to be fighting. So, I mean, there's a there's a very good chance that guys like Drew Dober, Brad Riddell find their way into the top ten, maybe in the top five in the next few years. I mean, that'd be awesome.
0: Yep, go elevation. Oh, uh, imagine a fight where Ngannou takes the title and Dover takes the title on the same card. Like Danny would just split in half and start beating himself up out of mixed feelings.
1: <laughs> if KZR listeners don't know, hacks exists to like make me suffer. He thinks he feels that I'm the, too smug, a member of the vaping scooter gang, and that I need to be tempered. So, if anyone's curious, that is why hacks always saves specific comments made in the chat he always tweets specific things um because he's always here to just uh throw me to the wind
2: you deserve it but yeah i think i think we're all good uh anything to plug coming out danny
1: um i don't think i do i'm looking i I might do a piece on I mean don't hold me to this but I might do a piece on uh Regin Uh I don't know though. Is that the will... huge
2: guy against Brad Riddell?
1: Yes. Yes it is. He's massive. Um I don't know. I don't really have anything on the back burner. My Ovine piece just went up and I get I guess we'll see. What about you?
2: Uh yeah I don't I don't really have much that's pertinent. Um the continuing tragedy of michael johnson i'm writing about that uh, it, it's long overdue um what else what else what else nothing nothing really um hacks thank you for joining us uh it's it's a pleasure as always because you know you are the biggest tony fan here um uh, yeah thank you
1: uh, hacks is the unofficial third member of this podcast and so he's oh, always are. He will always be the the first person that we jump to when we get a chance to have a guest on. Is not that right, Hax?
0: Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, I mean, firstly, thank you for putting up for me. Um, Thank you for putting up for my constant jokes that imply you're the only sarcastic person of this group as opposed to just being the most public about it because we're all as cynical. <laughs> we're actually, like, I need to make a disclaimer because people will think I'm bullying Danny otherwise. Everybody is more cynical than Danny tooman and i are a lot more cynical than danny it's just danny's the only one who actually cares enough to post about it so it's
1: a big target i'm <laughs> <for> the only one to go public so there's gotta be yeah, i'm the scapegoat you have got to shoulder everything um but also the
2: goat
1: no that can't be right my name isn't calvin cater uh, uh
2: that's correct
1: uh whatever um thank you so much hacks as always uh you're welcome back anytime I don't know what Surim and I are going to record next. I guess. There is it 250? I don't know when the fuck that's supposed to happen. I think it's but... Burns Woodley. Oh, that's... Wh- okay.
2: I mean, okay. do I care about that? I think I kind of do.
1: I mean, I care about Burns. That's, we can talk about that. That's and then fine. Maybe, maybe we'll do like a a fighter of interest or something. I don't know. We'll figure it out um but you gotta
0: talk about woodley like there's so many hot takes on woodley's career and his technical accomplishments and just how good is he just how good is tyron woodley should fighter of interest
1: tyron woodley yeah that should be a podcast oh (laughs) that would be (laughs) fucking fun actually you know what that now that's the plan that's yeah that's that's it like the words in our mouths that's it fighter of interest tyron woodley oh that'll be fun
2: the most cursed content is coming your way soon.
1: That I mean shit, that is what like that is what our fan base is like <laughs> that's why they follow the people us. Need like, it. That, that's why <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well on that note, uh, thank you guys for joining us. Hacks again. Thank you very much. Um, we will be back short you know soon with another episode. Stay tuned to the fight site. You can follow Scrum at Scrum M says on Twitter, you can follow me at, at DMarty77, you can follow Hacksarized at Hacksarized on Twitter. Uh, and everybody, stay safe. One of our patrons, Alessandro Scazzaro, is still feeling a bit down about causing parents divorce, so we'll cheer him up a bit by fulfilling his dying make-a-wish. Bomba clap.